Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Reddit, Instagram, and MeWe. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. As a kid, I was very eager. I was very active. I loved to dance. But those things about me started to change. Even though I knew something was wrong, I never imagined it would be this. Empty meds. Those are all full. This is what life became. There are more cases than HIV and breast cancer combined. Right now my hands are burning. You could do all the right things and get bit by a tick. And it'll change your world forever. I was having a lot of patients coming into my office with bullseye rashes, and about 80% would get better with antibiotics, but 20% would not. Here's a disease that's affecting a lot of people, can be costly, and there's been a very active effort to define not Lyme disease away, but chronic Lyme disease away. They saw nothing wrong in the laboratory test, and they figured she must be faking it. This is one of the most controversial, divisive debates in medicine today. The Lyme disease bacteria is definitely one of the smartest on the planet who knows how to change forms. Every doctor I've been to is saying, it's all yeah. in your head. You still have these doctors who are digging their heels in the sand. Investigate the CDC! If you can image this, I'm not sure there's a controversy anymore. You have your answer. I'm not going crazy. You're not going crazy. <laughs> How many people go through this and then just go home and suffer in silence? Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 492. Fresh off its one-week Oscar qualifying run is The Quiet Epidemic, a documentary that delves into the controversial history around chronic Lyme disease in the fight by patients and scientists to change outdated policy and develop new treatments. With its blend of history, patient testimonies, and scientific information, The Quiet Epidemic is an illuminating, heartbreaking, and riveting investigative documentary into a disease that affects 500,000 people per year in the U.S. alone. And joining me now is the co-director of The Quiet Epidemic, Winslow Crane Murdoch. Winslow, thank you so very much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Seven years into making this film, and like I said in my introduction, you just recently had some screenings at the IFC Centre for Oscar qualifying run. What's it like for yourself and your co-director, Lindsay Keys to be able to share this movie uh, with an audience um, after so long and um, so much uh, put into the film um, after all these years? It's uh, super exciting. Uh, I think we've, we feel really grateful to be at this point, and it's both of our first feature films. So to, to be playing at the IFC center and to be Academy qualified and um, to, we've been to like close to 20 festivals and really incredible festivals. So, um, and it's been received super well. So that's just been super exciting, especially having worked on it for so long. 
Um, and for us, it's a super personal story as well. Um, we both got into it because we met at a Lyme disease doctor's office in upstate New York. That's how this whole process began. Our, our, our doctor actually introduced us. Mm. Um, and that's where we met Julia, the main character of the film as well. And so, um, yeah, it was a long, hard, personal journey, um, uh, even though our stories aren't in the film. Um, of course, as you said, it's, it's a heartbreaking film in a lot of ways as well. And we lost some people along the way. And so, um, you know, it's, it's an emotional, um, it was a very emotional process and it's emotional to see it now on the big screen. Um, but we really wanted to create something that could be a tool for folks to to begin to understand why it's so hard to be a patient diagnosed with chronic Lyme or, or, or long Lyme. Um, and the response that we've had has been incredible. And, and already people are, um, are, you know, families are seeing it, parents who didn't believe are seeing it and, and apologizing to their children or, or vice versa. And so um, it's already having an impact and we're incredibly grateful for that. So when you and Lindsay meet back in 2015 in that doctor's office, it's clear you guys have a, have a connection. Lindsay has done some acting, producing. You've done some short films as a director. You want to make this documentary. It is a documentary, though, the whole kind of history of it, the whole, you know, dealing with uh, the bureaucracies of, like, government agencies and insurance companies and any your personal stories, too. Mm-hmm. Where do you start? I mean, it's a it's a story that goes everywhere. What's the first focus do you start from, and that can allow you to kind of spiral out into everywhere else? Because I'd imagine that it's not only um, the the personal um, emotional impact of it, but just the, the the topic as a whole is so daunting and deep. I mean, I mean, it's a it's a, yeah. it's a it's, I'm just trying to figure out like where where's the best moment? Where do you guys say, okay, we need to start at this point here, and then we'll focus yeah, on everything else? For sure. You know, I think with a lot of docs, you you find it as you go, you know, and so and we, of course, were doing our own learning because we were also really sick. And so, you know, our to be to be diagnosed in and of itself is just so disorienting. You end up in this doctor's office that doesn't take insurance and you have to decide who to trust. And they're telling you, hey, this this terrible way that you're feeling, we think is from a tick bite. Um, and at my first appointment, they handed me a sheet that said, here's why Lyme disease is controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so every part of it is strange. And so we were just kind of learning as we went. Um, we met Julia and her father Enrico at the doctor's office that we were at after they were blessed by Pope Francis um, in December of 2015. And so that's really where things started was just following them and um, starting to get to understand their story, to understand what they were up against. As you see in the film, they had some high level officials reach out to them and try to discourage them from Lyme yeah. disease. Um, and so that was eye opening to see the pushback that they were getting um, and where that pushback was coming from and who was reaching out, et cetera, because they had been all over the news throughout the New York area. And so they were getting a ton of people reaching out to them people saying, hey, we have Lyme disease and people from all over the world saying, hey, we have Lyme disease. And then also people saying, hey, you're hurting your daughter by pursuing this treatment. And so that was sort of our, our way into the controversy where we started to see it firsthand. Um, and that and, and also just our personal experience of trying to get diagnosed in the first place. Um, and then the film just broadened from there as we started to meet people. And as we raised the funds to start traveling and go around the country and we went to Europe a couple of times, we go to India with Julia's family. Um, and so it, it just the 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 sort of um, umbrella widened and we started to started to really get into the details of um, why the controversy exists and why it's so hard to be a patient. There was 
a lot of really great investigative reporting that came before us. And we see a couple of those investigative reporters in the film. So Mary Beth Pfeiffer is sort of the spine of the film. And she had written a credible book called Lyme, the first epidemic of climate change, which really tracks some of that history. Uh, and then the biggest resource was Pamela Weintraub's book. She's also featured in the film. She wrote a book called Cure Unknown, which goes through all of the controversy and talks about the insurance angle and, and the, vac- the vaccine issue and, and all of these things in depth. Um, and so, you know, we were we were learning as we filmed and we were reading and we were researching and we were talking to all of these activists in the field. And, um, you know, I think that one big thing with Lyme is that this is people have been fighting this for 45 years. And so there's all these people in the field that already knew uh, so much of this. And what we were trying to do was just sort of coalesce all of that into a piece that felt like it could be coherent, uh, mm-hmm. where people could get a lot of that information quickly. Um, and then, of course, you know, so we chased a lot of stuff in, in production. And then in in the edit was when we really had to decide, okay, what is our story? You know, we know what the Lyme disease story is, and we know all of these different areas that we could take this, but what is it that we're going to really say um, that can make a coherent 90, you know, 100 minute package um, that can people that can give sort of people the primer on the information they need, but can also be um, really emotional as well. And we wanted it to not just be a lecture, you know, we wanted it to feel like a film. And so that's why the character stories were so important to us and and choosing characters who um, aren't just victims, but are fighting back in their own ways. And I think you see that over the course of the film, even though it's really devastating, there's a lot of hope in that as well, because these characters are really um, demonstrating what it means to show up and to fight for people. um, A theme that I took away from the film and I don't know if anyone's mentioned this to you, is um, it's the little things that kind of made or, or can break you. The, yeah. the thing that kind of caused so much suffering for people is this little thing that can yeah. hardly be seen, yeah, yeah. gets into yeah. your, your bloodstream and causes so much pain and suffering and for some people for a very long time. But as Julia said at the end of the film, it's also the little things that really count as well. It's the little miracles in life that really count as well. And it's such a very wise and thing for for a person of her age but ended we hit but the time we hit the end of the film she has her 16th birthday party yep. um I, i'm not sure what what age she was was she around eight or nine when she first was diagnosed with uh lyme around that age so? uh she's about 11 11, 11 yeah. and she's she's went through the wars you know as, as to say you know yeah. fever comatose losing hair she can't walk and on top of that, she has the indignity of being called a liar, but not only um, her doctors, but as you mentioned before, um, her father, who yeah. worked so very hard on her behalf to to stay on top of, of everything and make sure that she gets the best you know treatment available and the best yeah, yeah. information available, um, is accosted pretty much by a person from the CDC, calls to home and says, you know, because your daughter and you have been on TV talking about the line that you're spreading misinformation and misinformation. I don't know about you, but I think that's the word of the decade <laughs> so far this year yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. because it's been used so much. That yeah. was such an incredibly frustrating uh, uh, moment in the film there when you watch that because there's nothing worse than seeing people suffering and then being, being given the indignity of having that credibility question as well. Yeah. Exactly. Um, when it comes to Julia and her family, what do yourself and Lindsay take from them? Because you two are both suffering as well from the same disease while this is going on what do you take from them to in their story that makes not only your own um personal life um, medical uh emergency at that time um does it make it easier does it give you more uh, inspiration and also as filmmakers 
Um, mm -hmm. Does it also give you kind of like a certain sense of, look, we have a great story here um, yeah. and we really need to to follow through with this to wherever it takes us? Because I think it's really important that, as you said before, those personal stories um, are the ones that really, you know, you can talk about all the medical stuff, you can talk about mm -hmm. all the stuff with the government with the government agencies, but it's that personal stuff. That's the, that's yeah. the, that's the center, that's the nucleus that really drives this story forward, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate those observations. I think I think that we, you know, to me, their their story was a love story. You know, the love between a father and his daughter, and the whole family as well. Um, you know, Enrico, I think, demonstrates the father demonstrates what it means to show up for somebody. You know, <laughs> and to show up for somebody you love. Um, and to believe them despite the odds. And, and we know so many people through this process who have been abandoned because when a doctor tells you uh, that you're crazy, um, a lot of people just take just take that at face value and they say, okay, I guess that's what's going on. I think for Enrico, he knew Julia well enough. He also had his own medical background. He was mm -hmm. a he was a respiratory therapist before this, working in this massive trauma unit in New York, you know, so he had his own medical language to understand what was going on and, and to understand that her vitals were all over the place and, and that she was truly sick. And so, um, and they went through psychiatry. That's, that's the wild thing. I mean, they, in the hospitals, they, they, you know, they accused Julia of faking it and they were like, okay, well, let's go get a psychiatric workup. And the psychiatrist came back and said, "We think this is a ph physiologic illness that you need that you need to get looked at." I, I believe uh, yeah. the term that they used was um, conversion syndrome, which I think is a nice syndrome. way of saying you're just you know um, putting yeah, your yeah. own spin on this kind of, of thing, right? Yeah. right? And they told her, "Go home. You know, mm -hmm. this will resolve in two months." Um, they also said, "This is this is what happens to um, high achieving young woman at the, at, at this age um, is all this pressure that she's on." And so there's there's of course the um, the genderized aspect to it as well. And so many women are, are, are misbelieved. And the, there's a whole history that we didn't get into around hysteria and, and all of these other diagnoses being thrown out in the medical community. Hmm. Basically when we don't have good answers, it's what's easy to turn to, you know? So um, yeah, I think what we, we realized right away that their family was just so incredibly special. I think that, as I said earlier, we were looking for people that weren't just victims and they um, were, were really cognizant about um, fighting every day for, for what they needed and what they felt like they deserved, but also maintaining hope, maintaining joy. Um, the family's incredible. We came incredibly close with them. You know, they would, they're first generation Italian American and we'd go over there and <laughs> have these shoots and then they'd, they'd feed us more dinner than you could possibly imagine. And, mm. uh, you well, know, at least you got your catering sorted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, the whole, the whole family was just, was just so special in that way. And I think that, um, we knew that this story would be a demonstration of, of, of what it means to, to really, um, to fight as a patient, but also what it means to be a caregiver, you know, and I think those stories also aren't told, uh, enough. Being a caregiver is incredibly difficult. Um, and you see, I mean, it's a full-time job and Rico left his job, um, and his wife still works and she's, she's the breadwinner for the family now because she made a little bit more than he did. Um, and he left and his full-time job is fighting with insurance companies. I mean, he, after our IFC opening, I think the next day he was going to the Supreme court of New York to fight for um, a new treatment that she's trying to get at the spinal clinic. 
Um, and the insurance company denied it. And they, they wrote on her denial form, and this is just a couple of weeks ago, that she doesn't meet the criteria for physical therapy. You know, so that shows you what she's up against. I mean, she's in a wheelchair. She hasn't walked for seven years. They said, you'll get better in two months. It's been seven years. She's still in the wheelchair, still can't walk. And they're still pushing back on everything that he tries to do and saying, you don't meet the criteria for physical therapy. So the battle is always continues. But I think despite that all, they don't, they don't um, feel sorry for themselves. And, and they, they bring this incredible, um, they they're just they're just incredible examples of of um how to how to fight something but also to not let it consume you you know and they and they still live and they still um they still have hope for the future and julia just started college she's she's pre-med right now oh, okay. um, which is which is really exciting um her brother is now a doctor um, so the whole family is just incredible. Uh, and Dr. Neil Spector is, is the same exact way. And, and yeah. when we met both of them, um, we just knew that these were stories that we had to follow. The, the last thing I'll say on that is, you know, when we first started filming with Julia, the, the hope was really that she was going to get up and, and walk. I think that was everybody's hope, right? That she would have this miracle, this miracle of, of the Pope coming down and blessing her. And, and, and then all of a sudden she's, she stands up out of the wheelchair and, and everything goes back to normal. That of course didn't happen, but I think that there's the moment, my favorite moment in the film is, is the sweet 16 when you see the family reckon with the fact that there still is life after the wheelchair. And that if, even if she can't walk, they can still live they can still have their father daughter dance. You know, they find a way to do that. Um, they find ways to, to make life worth living despite what they're going through. And I think that's such a powerful message. Again, it comes back to those little miracles, doesn't, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The Matt's movie reviews podcast is brought to you by T public. T public is the world's largest marketplace for independent creators to sell their work on the highest quality merchandise. With over 1.2 million designs, Tee Public is sure to have something you will love. The Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast is brought to you by Amazon. The world's leading online store, Amazon is your first stop to buy a wide range of products at competitive prices with fast delivery times. Amazon is also a world-class entertainment hub that includes Prime Video, Audible, Twitch, Amazon Music, and more. Sign up with Amazon today and experience the best in online shopping and entertainment. Please support Matt's movie reviews on Patreon. Get access to exclusive content, request movie reviews and top 10 lists, and help support my work. Please click on the Patreon link in the description below. Let's talk about Neil Spector here for a little moment. For a moment. He yeah. passed away in 2020. Um, he was such a tireless advocate, and also his research into Lyme disease. He's he's fight against a, a lot in many ways the establishment that he's a you know as a him himself as a professor as a doctor that he's I wouldn't say he's a part of, but at least he's kind of like his territory, his field um, has just been remarkable. He, I mean, he himself was a, a person who was diagnosed, and it comes back to this comment that I've heard. I, I don't know if it was in your movie, but um, maybe I read it somewhere else, which is the Lyme community. Um, it's a community of not only not only you know uh, advocates, not only patients, but also people like Anil Spector who have the resources, have the will, have the way 
to really try to make inroads into what can be done in trying to in trying to you know help people like Julia. And in a lot of ways throughout the film, we kind of see these kind of like advancements in, in medical technology and new technology to try to get to the bottom of what is happening uh, with with these patients, especially with people suffering from long long term uh, chronic Lyme disease. Um, I also like meeting him um, because he just comes across as a really kind of remarkable man in, in many so many ways. Yeah, no, he's yeah, incredibly remarkable. Uh, I think, as you said, there is this Lyme community, and there is a stigma associated with the Lyme community that, um, as we talk about in the film, that you know, patients in the Lyme community sort of get lumped into some of these other communities. They get considered to be part of the anti-vax community, which mm. they are absolutely not. They get considered to be um, crazy and, and angry. And, um, of course there is a faction of that. I think when you have people who are chronically ill, especially a chronic illness that can go, uh, to your brain, um, of course there, there are, there are people who, um, who take it too far and, and who are, are deeply angry and, uh, who have been threatening to people who don't believe in chronic Lyme disease. Um, you know, but a lot of that anger ends, ends up being, justified if the, if not the tact you know the tactics certainly aren't but but the anger you can understand i think that as we were making this film what we really were thinking about is okay how do we change the narrative of who the, who this community is and dr specter um, is such a perfect example of that here's a guy who's a world renowned cancer scientist he went to harvard medical school he's at duke university now he created two cancer drugs that are now in the clinic for for breast cancer that are saving people's lives uh, dana farber cancer institute i mean you name it like every 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 you know he checks every resume box that you'd want to have um and yet he had this experience with Lyme disease where he ended up losing his heart because it was misdiagnosed for 17 years um and he almost died um and then of course you know uh, this is this is a spoiler but if, of course over the course of the film he ends up he does end up dying um in the middle of this incredible research that he's doing so neil in our mind was just this you know just from a credential standpoint was just bulletproof in in that way um but what made him so incredible was that despite his credentials he was also so humble and he was so willing to in my mind uh to embody what actually makes a scientist which is being open to um, being open to all the possibilities and finding ways to ask really good questions that lead you to more interesting places. I think that something that's happened in the Lyme world and especially in the Lyme science world is that the fight has been so nasty that the questions that have been asked have been geared at how do we how do we prove each other wrong? So how mm. do we show that there's absolutely no chronic Lyme disease? Or how do we, on the other end, show that you know, everyone's sick and this is a this is a massive problem? Neil Neil's whole thing was how do we bring people into this field who are just good scientists who can take a fresh look and let's mm. and let's you know see where it lays you know. But also he went in with the idea that the scientific questions that we ask need to hold compassion for those who are suffering and need to be geared at how do we help? Whether they have chronic Lyme disease, which is long lasting bacteria or whatever it may be, how do we actually help this patient population? Um, and he gathered all of these researchers who were cancer researchers who were some of the best in their field. Um, and he said, okay, let's, let's take a look at this. 
here's what I'm seeing. What do you guys think? How do we revolutionize this quickly? Um, and in doing that, by asking the right questions and bringing new people in, he made huge strides in, in two years. Here's this thing that's been fought over for 45 years. And in two years, he's able to make these massive leaps um, because he was willing to ask better, more interesting questions that were actually based on the experience of what people were going through. Um, so yeah, his his loss was massive because he was such a beacon for the Lyme community. Um, and he, as you see in the film, he, you know, he was such a good guy that he couldn't say no to anybody. Um, and he, he was just, you know, he would, he would be messaging with all of these random folks in the community, giving them advice, just cheering them on saying like, you can get better, you can do this. Um, he gave so much of himself, um, to all the people around him. Um, and was was truly one of the most you know incredible people that um, that I, I think Lindsay would say this as well one of the one of the most incredible people that we've ever met and it was a, re a real honor to get to know him. He was a, a great advocate, a great professor, a great scientist, and what he kind of established as well, like you're talking about that compassion for the people in the line community, and he wanted to look at these things with fresh open eyes. And I think one of the themes in the film is the um, the theme of dogma. In regards, in, in regard, in, in, to, in the established um, medical community, um, CDC, the NIH, the IDSA, they're all using like these guidelines that were created back in 1975. I mean, really crazy stuff. Things need to be like need to be updated, and, and unfortunately, things aren't. And and there has a there's a ripple effect, and in insurance companies don't don't help out, and a lot of people don't help out, and people like you know Julia and her family are really out of pocket, pocket and they can't get their treatments yeah. and such, and I think when people think of the word dogma, they think of kind of like a religion or religious institutes. And I think yeah. people need to really realize is that dogma doesn't come down to one type of philosophy or one type of uh, theology or one type of anything. Sure. Dogma can be found anywhere. And, and in the history of science, we've seen that over and over again, you know, from the Galileos to yeah, yeah. Uh, Darwin to um, I forgot who the guy was who um, – uh, the surgeon who had um, the crazy idea about washing your hands before and yeah, after yeah, surgery, yeah, yeah. he was like a deemed a, like a like a heretic yeah. in, within the community's world. It happens over and over and over. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just a really interesting thing as in the science community because the whole point about science is that you look at your research over and over and over again. And if a new idea does come up, you look into that new idea. And if it takes you somewhere where we can change um, an, a, uh, an old, you know, established whatever, then you go with that and you change things. It's all about progress. Um, and unfortunately, when it comes to uh, Lyme disease, especially chronic Lyme disease, that progress is not found within the medical establishment. Um, yeah. I guess my question is, and I hate to be a downer about it, is that is anything going to change regards to this? Because it just okay. seems like no matter what type of um, evidence is put forth or no, and testimonials from people whether it be in, in congress or wherever it just seems like the same people are really digging in their heels further and further um, and now because they are being compared to people in the anti-vax community which i don't get because you know, one thing like people in lyme disease community one is a vaccination um mm -hmm. that's what they do want they're not anti-vax whatsoever um it just feels like that it's become more of a social political um issue rather than a medical issue and i think that that's a really kind of sad thing to see yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. 
Um, yeah, was the one correction on the guidelines. The guidelines were put into place in 2001 and they haven't okay. changed, since then, but they were okay. used to sort of solidify the conversation and the science that, that did come before that. And so okay. I would argue that it's based on science that's really outdated. You know, I think that I, we got one of the, one of the guys on the phone and, and I give him credit for being willing to chat with me and, and you know, he was, he was really convinced of their science that, that chronic Lyme doesn't exist. And he was like, this is just not what we were seeing. And we were doing the best with the, with the understanding that we had at the time. Um, I think there's a lot, a lot that you could argue there, but, but if we take that just at face value, um, you know, I think one of the things that happened that has really affected the field is that the, uh, the definition of what Lyme disease is, was artificially narrowed. And mm. so all of the science that has been done on that side has been using what I would argue is an artificially narrow definition of Lyme disease as their entry point to do that science. Uh, and what that does is just reinforce the belief that, okay, if you're only looking at people who got a bullseye rash um, and uh, you know they were bitten by a tick within a week and you treat them with antibiotics, uh, the majority of those people do get better, right? The question is, what happens when you don't have the rash? What happens when you miss the diagnosis? What happens when you don't take antibiotics until four months or a year or two years or three years? Um, there hasn't been good science on those sort of what ifs. And, and I will say that even in, you know, in 2015, they released this sort of triumphant study with the, with the log line being, chronic Lyme disease doesn't exist. This is not a problem that we need to worry about. Like let this, let this study ease your fears. And what they did is they followed people for like 10 to 15 years, uh, this cohort of patients who got a tick bite, got a bullseye rash and were treated within seven days of, uh, of that tick bite, you know? So that's like the golden period in Lyme disease. If you do all of that, you've done everything right. You know? Um, and even then 15 years later, there was 5% of patients who were still complaining of various symptoms. And they use that to say, that's a super small percentage. That's nothing to worry about. These are just these sort of weird outliers and they're complaining of a little bit of joint pain, a little bit of fatigue. We don't really need to worry about that, right? I look at that and I say, 5% 15 years later of people who got treated right away, that to me suggests that there's still a problem. And what do you do when, okay, it's not within the week of treatment. Again, you didn't get the bullseye rash, you know, all of those things as they start to snowball further and further from the tick bite, how does that, how does that look? And if you are, if you still have 5% who are failing treatment when doing everything right, I would, I would argue that that that's not, that that's the problem, right? But those, those numbers have been minimized and they, and they do that all the time to say, well, it's a small number of people who don't get better. What we're saying is, okay, that, was, that small number of people actually really matter. Uh, and when it's year after year after year with this many people getting ill, um, then that's a problem. I think to answer your question about are things going to change, I think there is some hope right now. So one is that the NIH has approved a lot more money for Lyme disease research. Um, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but there has been a lot of good uh, good activism on the ground that has that has led to an increase in in funding dollars. One of the things that we're calling for is that 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 funding needs to go to new scientists in a similar way to Neil was saying we need to bring new people in. Um, that funding needs to we need to make sure that it just doesn't go to the same group of ten to fifteen guys who produce the same science and who keep saying, "See, this isn't a problem," right, and washing their hands of it. 
Um, so if that science goes to new people, I think that's a really hopeful step. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I think is hopeful is that, you know, COVID has really changed the landscape for how we think about disease um, and public health. And so, you know, if you look at what happened with COVID, you know, early on, this idea of long COVID was really dismissed by the medical community. And people were using a lot of the same language that they were using around Lyme disease of, oh, well, this can't be traced back to COVID. Uh, this is this person just um, having suffering the aches and pains of daily living and brain fog isn't really a symptom, you know, all the all these types of things. So many people got COVID at once, got long COVID at once that it couldn't be ignored. And there was like a billion dollars that were earmarked to do research on long COVID. Uh, and people are starting to get um, treated for long COVID and they're studying it at, at major academic institutions. I think whatever is happening with long COVID is going to unlock some answers with what's happening with Lyme disease. Um, if they continue to approach it in an open-minded way. I think it'll also unlock answers for chronic illness in general and and give us a sense of what might be happening in these patients who have chronic fatigue syndrome, who have fibromyalgia, who have all of this sort of cascade of autoimmune conditions that are on the rise. Are there underlying infections that could be a part of it? Is it a post-viral process or a post-bacterial process that's causing the immune system to go haywire? Is it some mix of the two? You know, I would argue that probably the this, the answer is going to lie somewhere in between those two extremes, right? As it, as it often does. Um, so I'm hopeful that that research and and that that sort of understanding it's sort of a paradigm shift to say that one disease can look different depending on who we are right and what we show up with um it's not going to be the same for everybody um and that understanding uh, could could you know could cause huge strides for for folks um in the chronic illness community and hopefully also you know in covid i think we began to understand how bad uh antibody tests are for covid mm. early on we realized that there was all these articles in the New York Times, et cetera, being like COVID antibody tests have a 50% false negative rate. We would argue that Lyme disease is around the same. And people were writing, well, you can't trust antibody tests for X, Y, Z. Um, sure, if they're positive, they tell you something. Um, you can get some information from them, but to just get a flat positive negative from an antibody test uh, is really an unreliable way to do it because everybody's immune system is different and everybody's reacting differently to these things. And so the fact that we still have an, an antibody test and the fact that we still have the antibody test that we have, which we go into in depth in the film, uh, is also is also just terrible. And, and even in that, just, just adding some information back into those tests or changing those tests would be a huge step forward. And I do think that that there's potential for progress on that front. Well, I got to say, the quiet pan- epidemic has just been such a eye-opening. Not only is it terrific in the information, but the way that you and Lindsay present the information as well, because there's a lot to take. And you were saying before, there's a lot of information you had to put it together in a really comprehensive kind of uh, package. Yeah. The editing is fantastic. I love the music as well. The score's fantastic. Yeah. The way that you weaving all the different kind of elements works very well almost kind of like uh mesmerizing in a sort of way and that's the type of documentary like to watch because you need to make sure that the focus is on what's on the screen and and you really do that here and you just had your qualifying run i know early 2023 i think you guys are going to go nationwide have it out there and i don't know about you but i think my idea of what a great miracle would be in regards to the whole um long-term line is that someone watches this film you may be a younger person and it inspires them to want to look into it themselves and maybe they will grow up and they'll be the next uh, Dr. Neil Spector and maybe they'll be the ones to move things forward. And who knows, maybe yeah. Julia might be that person. Um, yeah. She's here doing pre-med now and I really hope 
that is what happens. I really do hope and fingers crossed for um, Oscar success for you guys, whether like an art nomination or something coming your way, because I think it's really, I'm like for myself, I've seen like maybe around 200 or so films this year. It's in my yeah. top 10 films in my, in my, in my top, top list of my documentaries as well, which I'm working on right wow. now. I mean, it's a, it's really is a fantastic documentary. I just want to say congratulations to you, Winslow. Congratulations to Lindsay. Please pass by. Congrats to her and, yeah, and best of, of luck with the upcoming rollout because I think people need to see this film and, and people need to talk about uh, long-term Lyme and, and all the things that come with it. And um, hopefully from this, um, some progress will be made because that's what we need. So thank yeah. you so much for your time today and um, best of luck with the film's release. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and, and for your response to the film. I just want to say one uh, one quick thing on that front is we are rolling out a pretty robust impact campaign. So we're going to do nationwide theatrical, hoping to get into a bunch of markets, but then we're also running community screenings and we're running going to be running community screenings all across the world. So folks can reach out to us on our website. It's theclydeepidemic.com. Yes. Um, and they can sign up to host a screening. They can also send letters to representatives, et cetera. There's a lot of ways to, to, to take action. And we're going to be building that out even more as we go and hope to use the film as an advocacy piece to take it to Congress and to push for these types of things. And I, I really appreciate what you said there. Hopefully, if we could inspire the next Neil Spector, then I think that'd be a service to all of us. So thank you so much for engaging with it and for, for those kind words about the film. And I really appreciate you having me on.